I invite you this morning to open your Bibles to the book of Galatians. You are relatively new to us uh, at Grace Covenant, um, just so that you're aware our normal practice is to work our way through a, a, a letter, a book of, of the Bible, verse by verse, uh, uh, week after week. But the, this first week of each month where we uh, set aside uh, the table uh, and we, we come uh, to experience the grace of God uh, through communion, uh, we turn our attention rather than the in-depth study, uh, but to a passage to prepare us uh, to come to this table to experience the grace that God promises. Uh, and so this morning I want to consider Galatians, Paul's letter to the Galatians in chapter 1, uh, verses 6 through 9. Hear the word of our God. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and who want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. The word of our God. Let's pray. Our Father, as we come this morning, we pray that you would grant us ears to hear, hearts to receive, minds to understand. May these gifts of grace come by the power of your Spirit, for while you have granted us great faculty, uh, none of them are, are able uh, in themselves uh, to discern uh, and to uh, fathom uh, the spiritual implications uh, that must come by your Spirit. We also pray that as you, you grant us this grace, uh, you would do in accordance with your promise, that you would use your word and the Spirit applying that. You would bring change, change of mind, change of heart, change of life. Uh, but of all, may we recognize that your word not only shapes us to conform to be like Christ, but unites us or strengthens the unity that we have in him. So may we be a people who, having heard and received your word this morning, be a people who are more and more in love with Christ. May we see his great love for us. Lord, bless us that we may be honoring to you and a blessing to those around us. We pray to your glory in Jesus. Amen. You may have heard the story of the widow who bought a parrot to keep her company. The woman went to a pet shop, as you would expect that she would do, and she bought a, a parrot. She brought the parrot home, uh, but a week went by and the parrot didn't say anything. So she went back to the pet store and said that she thought that she'd bought a defective parrot, but the person at the pet store said, you know, it's probably not the problem, and asked if she had bought a mirror for the parrot, and she said no. And she said, well, parrots like to look at themselves in the mirror, and, you know, that gets them happy, and they're more ready to talk. And so went and bought a mirror, brought the mirror home. Another week goes by, the parrot still isn't speaking. She goes back to the pet store, and the pet store owner uh, said, well, did you get your parrot a ladder 
they like to climb and, and be active in their cages. And she said, well, I hadn't. And so she bought the ladder, and she takes the ladder, puts it in the cage, and the parrot enjoys the ladder and enjoys the mirror, but still isn't speaking any intelligible words. She goes back one more time. It's been a couple of weeks now. And she asks, what may still be wrong? And the pet store owner says, well, did you get your parrot a swing? Once again, she says no. She brings a swing. The parrot enjoys a swing, the ladder, and the mirror. Looking itself in the mirror while the parrot is swinging. But while the parrot makes uh, beautiful music while swinging, uh, no intelligible words. Finally, after a few more weeks go by, the woman returns to the pet store with a box and a dead parrot. And perplexed, the store owner asked, did your parrot never say anything? And she said, well, the day before, yesterday, he did say, don't they have any food at that store? That was a really bad joke. <laughs> but it is a joke with a point. And the point of this particular bad joke is that it is quite possible to be very engaged, very active, uh, very busy with something and still miss uh, the primary point. Uh, to be very diligent and very attentive and, and yet still neglect that which is most essential. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is addressing in this letter that he wrote to the Christians in Galatia. He sort of gets right to it here in this passage in, in verse 6 that we read this morning. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you to the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. And he's pointing out to these Christians that it is quite possible for people to be busy about religion, involved in the church, uh, engaged in ministry, and still neglecting the one thing that brings life and brings power, and that is the gospel itself. Now, we know that he's writing to Christians here, not that necessarily that everyone who was sitting there when this letter was first written was a believer, uh, but we know based on what the Apostle Paul says to them throughout this letter. Now, this is Paul's most terse letter. He has nothing good to say, really, uh, about the people whatsoever. Usually he says how thankful he is for the people and has some corrections that he's going to offer. In, in this letter, he doesn't express any particular thankfulness. He just is very direct, uh, very blunt uh, about this, and yet he's very clear that he's writing to believers. We see it um, perhaps most especially in, in uh, the beginning of chapter 3. He kind of goes from his uh, challenge to them of neglecting the gospel and then tells his own story, showing how the gospel is vitally important. And now readdressing the people in chapter 3, he says this, You foolish Galatians who has bewitched you, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun with the Spirit, that you are now going to perfect yourself by your own flesh? See, Paul, as he's writing to these people, he, he's pretty significant questions. First, he's declaring to them, look, you've, you, you saw Christ portrayed. So the preaching that they heard uh, emphasized the life, the death, and obviously the, the resurrection of, of Jesus Christ. That was the central message that was proclaimed to them. 
And then the question that Paul asked them is also vitally important for us to recognize that he's not just talking to people who may or may not be Christians, but included in those who seem to be deceived, those who have uh, subordinated the gospel to some other message, are those who are Christians. Because his question is this, did you receive the Spirit by believing or by doing the works of the law? And the only ones who have the Spirit are those who have believed the message of the gospel. See, it's the Spirit who enables us to believe the message of the gospel. The Spirit takes up residence within all who believe. We receive the Spirit as a gift of God's grace, but only believers have the Spirit of God. And so he's writing to people, uh, many of whom, most of whom, if not all of whom, have believed the message of the gospel at some time in the past. It was a clear presentation of the gospel. There was evidence that they had believed what the gospel was, and they had received the Spirit as, as a, a, a part of, as the grace of God that uh, enables, that, that comes with trusting in, in Christ. It's part of their salvation. Paul is writing to believers here, and it is a, a stunning reminder to us, that even those of us who know Christ can also be um, tempted to, or prone to, subordinate the gospel, and then begin focusing on other things that are of secondary importance. Not necessarily things that are not important, but things that are at best secondary of importance. Now the question somebody might ask is, well then how does this happen? Well, Paul gets into that as he writes here in, in verse 7. Uh, he says, you know, there's not that there is any other gospel, but there are some who trouble you and, and want to distort the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what Paul is saying to them, which is also true for us today, is that there are people who are quite compelling, seeming quite knowledgeable, and have no difficulty using the Bible to declare their message, and yet they distort the gospel. But because they are so compelling, and so passionate, and so sincere, and seeming so quick to present the passages from the Bible, it is easy to get caught up in the current of their message. And eventually we get swept away, swept down away. Whereas we're not necessarily rejecting the gospel, denying the truth of the gospel. Nowhere do we see that hinted in this letter that that was the problem. None of them were rejecting Jesus Christ, denying his death, denying his resurrection. But the people that had come to them uh, that we were called uh, Judaizers, uh, they came to the, this, this group of people, the, this church, and began teaching them, saying, yeah, Jesus is important. But if you really want to live the Christian life, here's where you focus your attention. And in particularly with bringing them uh, the laws as they were established uh, among the Jewish people in the generations before the coming of Christ. Now, we're looking at that in our study week in and week out. And in, in, in one sense, you can certainly understand that being a temptation for uh, those who were recipients of the letter of the Hebrews. They'd grown up Jewish. That was their practice. They were well-rooted in that. What's all the more interesting is that this is uh, happening to the Galatians. Almost none, if any, had been Jewish. They, they grew up in the area in the, the, where Galatia was, uh, was, was pagan. And so while it's possible somebody had, you know, converted to Judaism and lived there. We have no indication of that from the text. The Galatians themselves were, were, were pagans and converted out of an ignorance of all that God had been doing through, uh, uh, through all of the, uh, through Israel. 
but hearing this message of Jesus Christ, who had come to redeem people from every tribe and tongue by giving his life as a sacrifice, not just for the Jews, but coming from the Jews, giving his life as a sacrifice to all who would believe in him and then find grace from God because Jesus had satisfied the righteousness and the justice of God through his life, his death, and had conquered it through his resurrection. But some people who'd come in and with their compelling words, with their charismatic personalities, uh, with their, their passion and probably even their own sincere belief, which adds to their passion, began to say, look, that's good, but this is what it really means. And began to make them focus their attention on things that may be biblical, but not the gospel. And I believe that Paul's words are vitally important to us today because we are blessed and cursed at the same time with more access to messages of people proclaiming biblical messages than ever before. Not only do we have, most of us have multiple Bibles lying around in different translations, you can turn your phone or turn your computer on and you can find it in any language in the world, even in script that you and I can't read, but it's there if you want to look at it. Commentaries, footnotes, everything you could possibly want to, to read, podcasts, radio shows, TV shows, you cannot escape it in our culture. And so if you're interested in, and you, you listen, you're going to hear some that are going to capture your, catch your attention. And sometimes it's their passion, sometimes it is their charisma, sometimes it is their, their sense of confidence, and they're proclaiming a message, and people are being swept away. Not losing your salvation, but swept away in such a way that they live as if they are unbelievers. They're living not trusting and not empowered, therefore, by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sociologist named Christian Smith, uh, it's been a generation ago, he did a, a study. Time he was at the University of North Carolina, I think he's at the University of Notre Dame now. And in his study, he, he had studied the, uh, the, the teenagers of evangelical churches through, all throughout America, asking them what they believed, then categorizing the answers that he received and then kind of generalizing the, the, the gist of, of the belief of the generation of those who were active in youth group, going to church, had grown up in church. He came to this conclusion and said that what these students were describing, and these students now were, would be in their 30s, would be better described as something more like moralistic therapeutic deism than anything that is consistent with historic Orthodox Christianity. Now, some of you have heard me use that phrase before, and others of you have probably heard that phrase elsewhere before, moralistic therapeutic deism. It's one of those that either intrigues you or makes your eyes glaze over and, you know, wish you hadn't, uh, wish the alarm had not gone off this morning. But it is important for us to understand what it looks like because it's through that guise that so often in our present generation that even those who are Christians who have received the Spirit because they have believed the message of the cross of Jesus Christ are being sidelined, disempowered 
because they are subordinating the message of the gospel for something that is no gospel at all, even though it may be biblical. And the gist of moralistic therapeutic deism, which is probably the most prolific counterfeit gospel that we face in, in our present day. I mean, there are others that are just clear counterfeits to, to the gospel. Uh, you know, the whole prosperity gospel that you get most of the time when you turn on certain TV stations where they tell you what's all about you. Everything's about you. God's desire is for you to prosper in every single way, to have health and to, um, to live with no problems whatsoever. I, you know, if you've been in any legitimate Bible study whatsoever, it seems to be um, quite easily contrasted with what Jesus says. Well, if you want to be my follower, take up your cross and follow me. And if you want to really know Jesus, we're going to know him better through our suffering than we are going to through our prosperity. The, the prosperity gospel and those people that are on TV, uh, you know, it's just it's an entirely different religion. And so once you recognize that, it, it, you just turn the TV off. I don't believe in book burning, but, well, yes, I do. Go ahead and burn the books. Um, and um, so, um, but uh, um, they have the right to, to print them. But, um, you know, it's, it, it, it's not anything that's close. And, and so for most of us, that's not going to be an issue. The moralistic therapeutic deism is incredibly subtle. The gist of this is this, is that there is a God. That's the deism part. You start to press and ask, what is God like? Well, then you focus on whatever your pet and favorite attributes may be. Usually chief among them is God is love, which he certainly is. But when you eliminate the other attributes of God and only focus on one attribute over another, or even a series of attributes over uh, and eliminate certain others, what you get is a God of your own making, of your own imagination, not the God as he's revealed himself in the scriptures. And so automatically we're beginning to go down the trail of idolatry because we're worshiping a God of our own preference, not a God who actually is. Beginning with the foundation that there is a God, and so you know the, any message that acknowledges a God seems to be a good message in moralistic therapeutic deism, and so they kind of tune into that. There, there's an acknowledgement that there is a God, and most of it will acknowledge that there's Jesus Christ. And ortho, in, in the more orthodox, which is, again, early on there was the evangelical churches, they would acknowledge that Jesus is God and Jesus is the Son of God. So there's, there's not a question of the orthodoxy of the, the bullet points of the belief. but rather how these bullet points are put together in creating an alternate gospel, a counterfeit gospel. So there's a belief that there is a, gospel, a God, but God's desire for us is to be happy and well-adjusted to become the best people we possibly could be. And the reason that rings true is there's truth in it. Jesus came, and part of what he appeals to is the fact that we know that we are broken. We know that we are not what we want to be. We know that we're not what we ought to be. And part of the promise is that in Christ, as we are sanctified, as we grow in his grace, we become more and more of what God created us to be. The moralistic therapeutic deism, the counterfeit gospel of our generation, turns that on its head. And rather than using the standards of holiness that God sets out in the scripture, that we would be conformed more and more to be like Christ, it changes the standards in assuming that Jesus then accepts each of us more and more on the basis of what we want to identify ourselves as. 
So it's not that we grow to be more and more like Christ, but that God accepts us exactly as we are, and that the words of the gospel, the words of the scriptures are to say, kind of like Mr. Rogers, I like you just the way you are. No need to change. And then it's our hurts and our brokennesses that we now see ourselves as victims rather than as sinners that we need to be mended from. We are not so much in need of a transformation as the environment and the way that we are able to handle the environment. The truths are that God does want us to be better people than we are. And he wants us to be whole. And the promise of the gospel is he is doing that. In Christ, we die to ourselves, which is not part of moralistic therapeutic deism, and see Christ more and more alive in us. Each of us still remains unique because he's wired us differently. He has a call to do different works. We're in different places and different relationships. And yet, the commonality is those who are in Christ. The gospel says we will reflect the characteristics of God in our lives. Students that were interviewed to try to put together, well, what does this look like, this God that you believe in? And if, you, if, if God's, God is primarily concerned that you're happy, contented, and, and a good person, how would you describe God? The answers of the students, and actually at least one student was quoted in this way, is saying God's kind of like your butler or your therapist. He's always there when you need him, but he doesn't butt in. We become sovereign, and God becomes our help. The chief end of life, according to this, counterfeit gospel is to glorify yourself. The chief end of God is to glorify you and to enjoy you. Now, as I describe it, all of us sitting here will say, well, who's going to buy that? And what's amazing is the number of Bible-believing, committed evangelical Christians. Theologian Michael Horton, in a book that he calls Christless Christianity, which is a tremendous book, and it's, it's, he, he is, says this essentially, is that without ever denying the truths of the gospel, so many Christians have sidelined it, subordinated it to the desires of what people want to hear, what we feel are our, our felt needs. That the gospel was relegated to being no gospel at all. The gospel was never denied, but it is either ignored or it's assumed. In other words, it's the plan of salvation now that we have believed that now we're in, now we need to focus on these other things. And what that looks like through the preaching and the teaching in those churches is not when they put the gospel to the side, they put the Bible to the side. The Bible is still front and center, and this is what makes it so confusing. 
And the food that is fed to the congregations and the people who are consuming would be series like 10 Ways to Be a Good Christian Dad, 10 Ways to Be a Better Neighbor, 10 Ways to Reach the Nations, 10 Ways to Help the Poor. Uh, you name the topics, all of which are important for us to consider, and they dig deep down and they pull out what is said in terms of the scriptures. And so people are, are hearing the word, and the values are, are, are seeming to be driven by God, and, and, and in a very real way, they are. It's, but they've taken the power and the heart out of the message because the gospel was either ignored or just assumed you already have that. That's why you're here, and so now you just want to hear. So now we'll give you Christianity graduate level. As Horton points out, that it's a gospel that is merely assumed, just as a gospel that is ignored, soon as a gospel that has no place. I suspect that if you want to know why the church in America is so anemic in our present day, it's because, the genera as it is today, is because my generation, the generation, those who are in the older part, I'm the last year of the baby boomers. Much of the problem is baby boomers, so I keep reading. Um, but since I'm the last year, everybody who's older than me's fault. But um, and, and some of the generation before us, who as a whole certainly knew the gospel. Rather than teaching the gospel, taught some values, just assuming the kids got it. And therefore, they had a set of values, but they didn't have the power that brings a renewed mind and an ability to change uh, and, and the connection, dynamic connection with God. It's not that they're, that they're not Christians, but they become disconnected in a lot of ways from that which the scripture says is the power for life for those who are believing. In his book, Counterfeit Gospels, Trevin Wax, the author, writes this. He said, when God wants me to be happy, he becomes the measuring stick for making decisions. We have, a fallen, we have fallen for a counterfeit. The tragedy of the therapeutic gospel is that it affirms the wrong concepts and with the right words. God does want us to be happy, but not in a way defined by 21st century American culture. God's desire for our joy goes beyond the happy meal. And he goes on and says this, Ironically, when we live as if our personal story is at the center of our universe, we struggle to find meaning and significance. But when Christ is at the center, and we are pushed to the periphery, it is then, in that place of seeming obscurity and insignificance, that we find true worth and value, by giving glory to the crucified and risen King, with whom we can become united through faith. And it's in that united with Christ in faith, which is my belief in the gospel, that is the power to change, to become what we want to be. And yet, like the Galatians, because it often comes with 
compelling words drawn from the Bible without denying the foundation when it is ignored we're disempowering ourselves and Paul is emphatic in fact he says there are some serious consequences for becoming disengaged from the gospel. We, we see it in verse 8. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one preached to you, let him be accursed. The word is actually anathema. And the word anathema means let him be condemned. Let him go to hell over and over and over for all eternity. That's what anathema means. Strong words. But just in case he didn't pick that up in the, that first statement, he, he continues on in, in verse 9. As we said, I say now again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, and he's already said, if anyone, including us. So if we came and we presented Jesus Christ crucified to you as the foundation, not just the entry point, but the foundation from which all fruit of, gospel, of, of Christianity flows, if you had heard that from us to begin with, if we now come and say, you know, we have some new ideas He's saying, then let us be a curse. Let us be anathema. If anyone is preaching to you another gospel, Paul says, it's any different than the one you received. Let him be anathema. Why so intense? Because the counterfeit gospels, even those that do not deny the gospel, are leading to a deadness. There's a deadness in fruitfulness for those who are already Christians because we don't have the power of God that is at work within us, even though the Spirit is there. The Spirit continually renews and builds on the power of the gospel. It is the engine, essentially, of our sanctification. But even more, because when this gospel, any counterfeit gospel, particularly one that seems close but is not the gospel, one that does not include Christ crucified, even if we are able to copy Christ in every way, we are still left with the problem of our sin, alienated from God and subject to his condemnation. And Paul, not out of anger at people in general, but love for people and anger at this message that is deceiving people, is reminding them of the consequences of participating, partaking, embracing any gospel that is different from the one that was proclaimed, Christ portrayed as crucified for your sin, for my sin, died and rose again for our salvation. As has been said many times, it's not just the entry point, it's not just the beginning point, it is the whole of the message. We don't move on from the gospel, we go deeper into it and we see how every aspect of our life is shaped by that message. As we prepare to come to this table, we are reminded of it. For one way 
to continually to reroute ourselves in the gospel is to partake of the table. Because what the table declares to us is the truth of the gospel. That Christ died in our place for our salvation because God has loved the people that he created and has redeemed. In fact, we're told in 1 Corinthians 10 that to have come to this table is actually a participating in the grace of God's gospel. Paul writes this to a different body of Christians. I speak as to sensible people. I guess that's us. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? See, Paul is saying that there is more than a mere memorial that we are engaged in when we come to this table. The table was established certainly to remember historic reality, historic events. It was the continuation in one sense of, of, the, of the Passover, uh, but it was also the pointing of the fact that the Passover was fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, who gave his life as the promised spotless lamb, but his blood was shed, because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. But the sacrifices that were made, even sacrifices that we were trying to make, they are not sufficient. The only thing that was sufficient was the promised spotless lamb to come. And so the element points us back to the fact that the blood of Christ was shed so that our sins could be forgiven. And it was shed because the body of Christ was broken, because he absorbed the penalty that our sins deserved. This is the heart of the gospel that we believe. But we're told that we participate when we come to this table, not only because we are reminded, but because there's something mystical that is taking place when we come in faith. We are feeding on Christ in a spiritual sense. We are being changed because our attention is given to that message. The mystical doesn't mean that we necessarily sense it in the same way. Anyone coming to this table, any, you know, however many of us are here, may feel something very different. Some who are keenly aware of their sin may feel the emotion of the sin being lifted from them. Others who know their sinners, but perhaps not as emotionally wired, may not have the emotional reaction, but it's not our sensitivity that matters but God's promise. And he has said that when we come to this table and we believe, which means we remember and we are believing what this table declares, we're participating and we are receiving God's grace. So as we prepare to come to this table, Take a moment to pray. And then I'll invite you to come. Father, as we do come, we do pray that you, by your spirits, would be at work. And part of that is the uncomfortable part of the spirit's work, uncomfortable for us, that reminds us not only that we are sinners by our nature, that brings to mind the sin that is so offensive to you. Our desire is so often to stuff it and not to deal with it, but Lord, I pray that uh, you would grant us the grace to, to not do that, but to allow the sin uh, to come to our mind, that we may lay it before you to recognize it is for this that Christ died.
But even as we are aware, may the Spirit continually remind us, because Christ died, it is no longer our record. He has cleansed us from the guilt. And now as we partake, may you be cleansing us from its power. We would be renewed in the power of the gospel and empowered to live as the followers of Christ in this world. To experience the joy that comes with peace. The peace that has been purchased by Jesus. Father, turn our attention to the love that sent your Son, to what he accomplished on our behalf, because he loved us. May our hearts respond to that. And may you be honored and glorified. We pray in Jesus. Amen.